uh, lecture on the idea, do we know God as creator uh, apart from his being redeemer? And, and the idea is, of course, that we privilege redemption, that uh, if you were to put this in John Baer's picture, that uh, the cross is an eternal fact about God. That is that, um, and there are all sorts of implications of identifying God as Redeemer. First of all, that, and you know what we were doing a little bit with apologetics, that the picture is that you can kind of know a God of the philosophers, but the problem is he's isolated and there's no narrative there. Uh, the other is that you get a static picture, but but ultimately. Uh, is that evil and suffering and human suffering that, that you know in in a understanding of the god of philosophers in some way god is completely removed from the problem of evil and so we've got a strange thing that has happened in christianity that i think in our doctrines of atonement we often do not address directly uh evil, we make sin a kind of separate or subcategory and evil a larger category. But I think the, the idea is that um, if we picture the narrative reality of scripture and the and human fall uh, and and knowing Christ or, or knowing God through Christ, we will not speak of God as if he is in some way or as if we have escaped earth's atmosphere or escape the reality of finitude and suffering that is we know god through christ and think the main thing we know about christ is uh, or one of the main things is he died that he, he suffered and died not to say not to in any way exclude his life from that um this is uh, uh in in a sense this is i think following the path of dietrich bonhoeffer and of course, as the uh, you know Bonhoeffer is doing an academic theology at the University of Berlin, and he is I think he would refer to himself in the same way that he was just sort of an academician and not really a Christian, but at some point he becomes a christian and 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 in his own depiction of it, it seems to be his trip to the United States and his encounter with the black church and the obsidian, what is it, the obsidian, I may, may not be saying it right, in, the, in Harlem, the Baptist church there. Uh, the black Christ is preached, he says, with, with passion and vision. He says, I turned from phraseology to reality at this point. That is, this in some way came home to him and it came home to him in a real world sense both in his home country where the church in you know this is bart had accused bonhoeffer of abandoning the church at a terrible time uh and bonhoeffer when he he eventually left the united states he felt like he had made a mistake in coming here he felt like he had abandoned his brothers and sisters in suffering 
But what he found in the United States was the was black people suffering under a kind of oppressive Christianity here. And so I think the two things came together for him, and he realized that he's going to have to go back. And I mean, ultimately, I don't think he pictured himself being a martyr, but that's what that's the end result of his becoming a Christian, because he's really describing becoming a Christian. And of course, in his imprisonment, he writes the book on ethics, uh, maybe the last book that he's working on. And the foundation of ethical behavior for him lay in the reality of the world and the reality of God reconciled in the reality of Christ. Both in his thinking and in his life, ethics were centered on the demand for action by responsible men and women in the face of evil. That becomes definitive for him of what Christianity is and what ethics is. And he's critical, obviously, of an academic or a Kantian ethic that is tying uh, ethics to, uh, you know, the the idea of a, a kind of capacity for reason. And he's... There's a, a, an insight here that we'll only see later, if you remember Eichmann on trial in Jerusalem. And he quotes Kant. You know, Eichmann is responsible in part for the transportation of the Jews to the death camps. And he quotes Kant, the Kant- Kantian categorical imperative. This is sort of like your sermon today in chapel, that... Um, the idea that, you know, oh, we just obey authority, that there's some sort of absolute mandate that we obey authority. Well, if that's your, if that is your ethical imperative, then you're going to be Eichmann. You're going to obey evil authority. Uh, and Bonhoeffer's point is it's precisely here. In other words, what's happening in a Kantian, by the way, you know that Kant came up with the phrase radical evil. Radical evil being the idea of someone doing evil just for the sake of evil, a kind of counterpower to the good. Kant recognizes this and rejects it. It's interesting. He sees this as a possibility. He says, oh, that can't be. There can't be such a thing. Uh, And so his whole ethical understanding, understand when we talk about Kant, we're really talking about, if you go study ethics, in the modern university, that's what you're studying. You're studying something on the. You're not going to go study Christian ethics, you know, in the way that a Hauerwas or a Bonhoeffer's doing ethics. Evil, he asserted, was concrete and specific, and it could be combated only by the specific actions of responsible people in the world. The uncompromising position Bonhoeffer took in his seminal work, Ethics is reflected then in his stance against Nazism. Um, Bonhoeffer is very early on, you know, when when Hitler is first uh, elected, he goes on the radio and is opposing him. He's he's an early voice against uh, Nazism. And by 1940, he's, we believe, entered this conspiracy. Now, there's argument about to the degree to which he was in this conspiracy, but he seems to have been part of the, his brother-in-law was part of the secret, you know, service, and they were actually double agents that 
Bonhoeffer, well, you know this, right? He was a double agent. Mm -hmm. He was pretending to work for the German Secret Service, but he was actually going overseas. That's why he was this strange thing. Here's this guy, a German, that's traveling all over the world, you know, in the in the the midst of the rise of National Socialism and the, the beginnings of World War uh, Two. And so, you know, if he's just a, a, a pastor, he wouldn't have been able to do this. But what he's, he's going under the auspices of being working for the German Secret Service. What he's actually doing, though, is going and making connections, diplomatic and connections to try to stop Hitler through uh, connections with the Allies. And so he's arrested. You know, this is one of the last acts of Hitler is to, he has this list. Unfortunately, his brother-in-law had made a list of those. He wanted a record. You know, it sounds stupid, but what he was trying to do was that if they were successful in getting rid of Hitler, then he wanted a record to, to give to the Allies and say, okay, here's the people that should not be prosecuted, you know, as a part of the Nazi regime. No, we were working against this. But unfortunately, they found that, and that was the basis on which they they killed off these guys and so Bonhoeffer's hung just a few days before liberation. Uh, maybe one of the final orders that Hitler gives is to, to hang these people. But he's working you know, in prison on ethics and so his, you can understand that his attention is focused in a, in a unique fashion on evil. Uh, his point in ethics how does ethical behavior in the reality of the world, in the reality of God, how can it be reconciled in Christ? To share in Christ's reality is to become a responsible person, a person who performs actions in accordance with reality and the fulfilled will of God. Now this isn't this may sound minor, but he's saying this is the ground of ethics. This is how you determine ethical behavior. It's none of this abstraction, you know, oh, well. Uh, no, the, the point is you determine ethical behavior in a concrete situation. You remember the story in Kant that somebody challenged Kant and said, well, wait a minute, what if, a, you know, a, a bad man was chasing your friend and he came to hide and would you lie and say that you didn't hide him? And Kant said, no, I would never lie. And, of course, what you have there is an Eichmann-like character mm -hmm. that's already being talked about in Kant. What's the counter to that is an understanding of who God is in Christ puts us in a concrete situation in which we do not imagine that aligning ourselves with the powers is in some way going to be ethical. No, that's how you get to be evil. Being an obedient, good citizen will make you radically evil. Does that sound too strong? It can make you radically evil. I think it will make you radically evil if, in fact, that is your prime ground for your ethics. So this is the problem in misreading Romans 13. You know, be if you take, huh? Be a good citizen. Yeah, if you take that and you take it out of context, go bear the sword and kick those guys out, kill them, so we can get their oil. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, yeah, you'll just be a good Constantinian Christian. <laughs>
the the place that you know the, that you run into this understanding of ethics is in Job, right? Uh, how does one handle the problem of evil? And the way you, I, I would say the two things, and I don't mean to make evil determinative of our Christianity, but I'm saying that our mishandling, our misunderstanding of evil is going to be determinative of our understanding of Christianity. Um, what is evil is going to determine who is God. Does that sound, you know, what is God's relation to the world? Well, it depends on how you understand the problem of evil. If we fix this problem in a way that God is, in fact, using evil or in some way that God needs evil or that we can explain evil in light of God's purposes, the danger is that we'll distort the person and work of God and the person and work of Christ. And the problem is that, well, if you fix the problem of evil, theoretically or philosophically, then what the cross is doing is not fixing the problem of evil, it's some secondary problem. But actually what's taking place in the New Testament is the cross of Christ addresses the problem of evil. Now that, that I, I hope that just seems of course to you. But understand in most theologies of the atonement, the cross is not made to address the problem of evil. You understand that? In Anselmian, penal substitution, you know, divine satisfaction, uh, moral uh, influence theory, and you just go through them. The purposes behind the cross of Christ in these theories does not have the draw, the cross address the problem of evil. This is why my I like Cohn's uh, you know parallel. Does the cross address the lynching tree? In many people's theology, it can't. There's this disconnect. And of course, if there's the disconnect, what you have is a bunch of white racist Christians, maybe in quotes, I don't know, do we put it in quotes? Lynching their black neighbors. Uh, you have, well, we don't need to go there. But, but the picture is you have Christians complicit in evil because they do not see how the cross of Christ addresses the problem of evil. And I think you could go right through, you know, atheism has an inadequate understanding of evil. You really can't have an understanding. Now I say that knowing very well that there are people like Zizek and others who talk about a radical evil, but understand they they really their their meaning of the, the word evil is that radical evil is primal and that the good comes through the evil. So they're talking about evil, but what they mean by evil is not what, and that's true, you know, of a theistic naturalism. Well, they still use the word, but what they mean is that evil is just, uh, you know, a part of the, the way things are. Pantheism, you know, uh, deism, Unitarianism, secularism, they all may use the word, but they mean they do not mean a real world evil, and so the the interesting thing is I think you you in fact lose evil, which you may say well that's a good thing to lose. No, if you can't identify it, if you can't say this is evil, then you're complicit in evil, and so in atheism there's really no possibility for evil, 
because there's no real possibility for value. Psalms 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. Evil deeds are an implicit denial. You know, they're implicit in the denial of God. But could we say the same thing about the distortion of the person of God? That we're going to end up, you know, in a theistic naturalism. God is part of the natural universe. And there's no real evil. There's only the appearance of evil. Pantheism, all is God. Now the interesting thing is, you know, this is very much like the philosophy of Spinoza. And Albert Einstein said he could not believe in God or uh, you know at least the God of the Bible of the Old Testament because of the problem of evil but my suggestion would be if you believe in the problem of evil that should lead you to an understanding of who the God in scripture is because it's precisely there you have a real world problem of evil and in Christ, God is dealing with that problem. In every other system, and including, you know, Einstein says he was just a follower of Spinoza. But in Spinoza, there's no problem of evil, because there really is no evil. Uh, you know, the, in deism, the first almighty cause is the laws of the universe. And evil is just an unreal part, an appearance of the laws of the universe. This sounds a lot like the friends of Job. Because they're going to they're going to really say there is no evil. Job, what's happening to you is not evil. It's just a, a, a just judgment that's been... In other words, they believe in this law and that this law has been put into place and Job has fallen under it because he sinned. Uh, you could say the same thing about liberation theology. Now I happen to, I think we're getting closer because at least, you know, that's why I like Cohn and in and, uh, and, and a black liberation theology, at least they have a concept of a real world evil. Now, unfortunately, they limit it to a kind of material or social condition. That's true of South American liberation, you know, and I'd say that ultimately that would be my criticism of Cohn, that his understanding of evil is too limited. Um, that getting rid of oppression is not per se the resolution. Certainly we need to get rid of oppression. We need to stand with the oppressed. Uh, but we need to understand that oppression is ultimately something that we do internally. In other words, we express we, we project this outwardly. But I would say that ultimately the evil that we would project outwardly is one that we carry within ourselves. That what we would do with the black other or the foreign other or the feminine other or whatever you want to call it is ultimately something that we do between uh, the law of the mind and the law of the flesh in Paul's description. That is, there is this internal oppression you know, this is Freud, but I think it's also the Apostle Paul, that our internal problem is not a separate problem from the violence and oppression that exists outside, outside of us in the world. 
You want to disagree with me? Sure. Jump in there. Does that sound right? I wasn't listening very well. It's really pretty outside. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> uh, Do you guys know what a theodicy is? Yeah. Uh, so if we could solve the problem of evil in a theodicy, um, this would be a good thing, right? No. In solving evil in a theodicy? That's the added definition. That is, I, 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 if I could explain the problem of evil. So what I'm doing here, I'm not explaining the problem of evil. In fact, I'm trying to say we have this problem of evil. Um, and it's a real world problem. I don't want to get rid of the problem theoretically because the danger is that getting rid of it theoretically will undermine the purpose of the cross of Christ. Um, so the problem with the Odysseys is that in explaining evil, they imagine the world is okay the way it is. And on a beautiful day like today, in which it's warm outside, uh, that may be easier than on a cold day in a concentration camp. So the cross... <laughs> just took it really far, really <laughs> fast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the cross in a theodicy type of frame of mind when you're looking out the window, no, <laughs> is not really, you don't really need the cross. Uh, it's not really necessary. Evil and Satan are not really so serious. They're all just part of God's plan. Uh, we lose, unfortunately, I think, if that's part of God's plan, we lose two things in getting rid of evil. We also lose God. We lose the real presence of God in Christ Jesus. You understand what I'm saying is the uh, I'm, I'm fighting the majority position as usual here. Yeah. I'm a small, still... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a small, I'm a, a cloud the size of a hand on the horizon. Um, the majority position, especially in, in a, well, both in theology and in apologetics, is to first of all in theology you do not relate atonement theory to evil. You understand that it usually relates to a problem in the mind of God, and in apologetics you don't bring in the cross. Because you have a theory or an explanation, a theodicy, apart from the cross. So, uh, Satan, you know, is given a purpose. Evil is given a purpose. Does Satan have a purpose in Genesis or Job? Uh, let me suggest no. The why? I don't know what that snake's doing in the garden. I don't know what Satan's doing in the throne room of God. And I don't think we're meant to know. It's only a dimly related detail. But what a theodicy would do, it would explain it to you. It'll say, oh, I know what he's doing there. God, you know, dot, dot, dot. He needs a soul-making 
evil in which people will experience suffering and come to maturity. It's good that you've been oppressed as a woman because that will bring you to full maturity. I think that I can bear children and be safe. <laughs> You need yes. the evil to corrupt you so that God can be your moral influence. To yes, in. yes. So, and, and what I want to, maybe I'm painting a dark picture for you. Because I'm saying that there is a, a, a confounding aspect to evil that I don't want to explain. But I think we have something better than an explanation. We have the cross of Christ that deals with the real world evil. And then that puts us in the position also, as Bonhoeffer is describing it, not of submitting to the powers that be, but of challenging the real-world evil that we face in whatever fashion we might face it. Um, so, he appeared, First John 3, 8 says, to destroy the devil's work. Uh, the devil is the father of lies. And, you know, I just take this, that the, we have a system of deception and lying that deals in violence and evil. And as Christians, we are to confront the principalities and powers in the same way that Christ did. Um, the picture in Acts is that we've moved, the world is moving from the power of Satan to the power of God, and it's doing that through the church. Paul says that he has blinded people's minds. They're subject to deception. Uh, the evil one, Matthew says, snatches, you know, this is Jesus' parable, the, the, the sower, that he snatches some people uh, that they, they do not uh, have an opportunity to. to apprehend the word uh, and so why did Christ come he came to defeat the evil one he came to conquer the prince of the power of the air in other words what is being described is uh, the victory of Christ over evil and you've heard the phrase Christus Victor and there, there are problems with it in the early church in the way that it's portrayed sometimes but in the New Testament what we have is this defeat of uh, the principalities and powers, the ruler of this world will be cast out. The lawless one will be overthrown. He shared in their humanity that he might destroy the one who holds the power of death. I think there is this outward aspect to it, but also, I think also an internal aspect that the evil one is defeated uh, within us. Now, uh, in the picture of the uh, uh, tetragrammaton uh, the four letters J-H-W-H in which God reveals his name to Moses I am that I am see what this is he is being and we can get to the being of God I am on the basis of the world, so that God is actually giving us a philosophical presupposition about himself. And he then is founding a kind of philosophical approach to God that we can incorporate. Is this what's happening in the Tetragrammaton? Is this what's happening? I'm giving you the typical reading of Yahweh. 
In other words, the, the, what has happened in a Jewish incorporation and a Christian incorporation of a Greek philosophical understanding, they've changed up the very story of the Exodus to make it accord with a Greek Platonic understanding of God. And they said, see, look, the God that reveals himself to Moses is the God of Plato. Uh, the way that James McClendon uh, translate this, he, he says, no, actually what is being revealed is Moses is worried about going and talking to Pharaoh. And God says, I will be what I will be. I will always be ahead of you. In other words, he's going to, he's saying, I will be there in the pillar of fire, the, the cloud. Find me as you follow your journey. So the idea is not that God is a, a philosophical abstraction, but God is a, a real-world presence in the face of Pharaoh, who is the one who's enslaving uh, the people. So it's ironic that people will take even a story here where God is revealing himself in history, and they'll abstract it. They'll do the same thing with Jesus in John, right? You know, in the Logos theology. Oh, yes, here's the Platonic Logos. And look, Jesus is just fulfilled. No, it's precisely the opposite. That he's that John, I think, is posing this Logos theology over and against a Greek understanding. So, uh, God's relation to creation in this understanding will become mechanical lawful and law will then be definitive as over and against the God who reveals himself in a synergistic open way that is what we do is taken up into who God is and who God there's an interaction and it's not just this mechanical relation that you get in a explanation what's what's how's God helping Moses problem of evil is he saying, let me give you a theory about God, Moses. And when you go back and you talk to Pharaoh, you just tell him that you're going to free the Jews mentally because you've got a new theory. No, what happens is a real-world deliverance from the slavery, the evil that's being done. I think in the same way we need to deal in a, a real-world way with evil. Uh, Paul says that creation has been subjected to bondage, to decay, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. That is that it's not just human, uh, the humans that are affected by evil, but the whole universe. There's an, this is uh, uh, in reference to the book of Job. There is an excess of evil. It exceeds the law of the world. It exceeds the scene of the world as a technical world. In other words, if Job's friends were right, it's a neat package. There's just a little bit of evil to punish Job. But what Job is saying is, no, there's too much evil. And of course, Job's experience is usually our experience. Oh, that God uses pain and suffering so that he can teach us a lesson. Oh, what kind of lesson do you learn when your five-year-old child gets run over by a car? What kind of lesson do you learn in the face of cancer? What kind of lesson do you learn? You know, uh, and people that are wiped out by evil. I'm curious as to how that helps them. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, what's popular in culture, especially Christian culture, like I can remember one song, it's like, your blessings come from raindrops, your healing come through tears, a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're here. What if trials of these li this life is your mercies in disguise and romanticizing the real world evil that we face. And um, that's not what's different from what's preached in the pulpit or what's read in books. Uh, yeah, that there that uh, uh, a kind of soul-making theodicy is what I think is being. Well, you said it more beautifully than I. Oh, did. I took it straight from the song. Oh, <laughs> you need the evil to grow up. Yeah, yeah, it's a good discipline. Yeah, and I mean, people who come from a Christian home, I, I can think of several times I've hear heard people who've relatively not ha haven't experienced the reality of evil in such a prevalent forceful way they kind of complain almost well I don't have a testimony because I've never been raped I've never been beaten God's never really saved me from anything because I've never personally experienced that yeah we need the fall we need the fall and this of course is Hegel but it's also the friends of Job, I'm afraid. It's uh, evangelical Christianity. It's Calvinism. It's but it's not just it's all it's just across the board. It's popular culture too. It is popular culture. It's every brand of uh, a perverted Christianity. That is, if you pervert this, you you have a perverted Christianity. Got to break eggs to make an omelet. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Philip Nemo is the guy he, he's written a wonderful book on a commentary on the book of Job um, this is a quote from Nemo <laughs> in the moment that it becomes apparent that the world does not exist by itself that it does not carry within itself a legitimacy and a necessity to be but is created or is not created according to the caprice of someone. In that moment, the nets of the law fall apart in tatters. What he's saying, two things come together. Creation ex nihilo, well, it's already, we don't, the, the universe is not created according to a law. And that's the mistake of the friends of Job. They just think that they can work this all, whole thing out lawfully. You understand this is what Anselm of Canterbury is doing. He's going to give us a law in which we can completely apprehend the necessity of the cross of Christ according to this zero-sum game. The number of angels that have fallen are going to be you know, filled. And uh, that he's going to tell us precisely in a lawful way, a regulated manner is Anselm's language, as to why Christ died. Anselm is doing the friends of Job. The church today is doing, Anselm, is doing the friends of Job, uh, is doing, in other words, making the cross of Christ on the order of a legal arrangement that is precisely what it is over and against. 
It is a complete undermining of the purpose of the cross. And of course, it's Job, we think, is the earliest book written in the Bible. So here in the very earliest book is this anti-theodicy, the notion that the law is inadequate, and we missed it. So, uh, this is... uh, from Job, neither speaking silence or sleep offers any release. Uh, while I am speaking, my suffer- suffering remains, and when I am not, do I suffer any less? Job 16.6. If I say my bed will comfort me, my couch will soothe my pain, you frighten me with dreams and terrify me with visions. Job is just filled with evil. Uh, and the point is, that if we're going to hear the word of God, we're only going to hear that word in the presence of the clearing that opens up in the realization of the reality of evil. That's the Bible. If you refuse to recognize the reality of evil, I do not believe you can apprehend the presence of God in the midst of evil. If we've got a theory, a theodicy, an Anselmian explanation that does away or or does not even consider the problem, unfortunately, I think we've gotten rid of God in the equation. Um, You know, you go through the the friends. Nemo's book is a wonderful book. Uh, he, He, you know, he goes through all the, analyzes the discourse of the friends. One speaks from experience. One speaks from observation. You know, the, they're speaking from the idea of tradition and even science. You know, meditate on the experience accrued by the fathers. Uh, there are the fathers who will teach you. They will teach you, and these are the words they will speak from the heart. Uh, and uh, they accuse Job. Are you the firstborn of the human race brought into the world before the hills? This tradition is better than reason. They're saying, we have this tradition, we have this understanding, Job, and you're challenging it. Ultimately, they're accusing Job of blasphemy. Because in saying that he is not deserving of this, they're saying, well, then you're accusing God of unrighteousness. You know the end of the story, that God sides with Job, not the friends of Job. Unfortunately, historically, in our theology, we've sided with the friends of Job. They'll appeal to mystery. That they've had an experience. This sounds a lot like not the Gnostics. You know, oh, I've had an experience of God. I have a secret revelation. This is Job 4.12. A whisper has come to my ears. This is Nemo. In short, the discourse of the friends is that of the heirs and guardians of a science which is in itself infallible. From the height of a knowledge that has an ultimately divine origin, they lord over the evils that overwhelm Job. They have a positive knowledge which they rely upon for the supervision of human action. They don't need a savior because they've got tradition, they've got a law, they've got science, they've got a mysterious revelation. Now, you know the answer to this in Job 19. This is 
Job, his answer, and I think this is the definitive answer. This I know that my defender lives, and he, the last, big letter L, will take his stand on earth. After my awakening, he will set me close to him, and from my flesh I shall look on God. He whom I shall see will take my part. He whom my eyes will gaze on will no longer be a stranger. It's prophetic. It's messianic. He's talking about his salvation on the basis of this Goel, or this Redeemer, who will buy him back. That I will see in the flesh my judge, but my judge is my Redeemer. Uh, He will buy me back. Uh, That he is talking about an encounter with the one who will save him. Henceforth I have, this is Job 16, I have a witness in heaven, my defender is there in the height. My own lament is my advocate with God. While my tears flow before him, let this plead for me as I stand before God, as a man will plead for his fellows. The Goel will stand surety, 17.3. Here resides in the heart while the Goel stands on the earth. One who is from heaven, I will see the judge. He will be in the flesh. I will see him face to face. He will redeem me. Let me conclude with this quote from Nemo. Here for Job, the witness in heaven is manifestly divine just because he has a human form, just because he is human enough to understand the significance of tears. This witness, therefore, will be able to defend us with full knowledge of the facts as a man will plead for his fellows against the accuser. Uh, So, here is the resolution. Neither a theodicy, not a science, not a tradition, not a mystery, but God breaking in and resolving, confronting the problem of evil. It's there in the earliest book. So I think you can take the book of Job, and it obviously we can't know all of the gospel, but certainly there is the pointer to the resolution to the problem of evil that sets the story of Christian, or the, the narrative of the Bible then, on the path that we need to read it on, you know, throughout what is happening in Scripture, there is this continual confrontation with evil that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Comments, questions, rebuke, rebuttal. You can. <laughs> we always need that. I like that text from Job 19. It was looked over. You didn't didn't do anything with it. I'm sure it was Redeemer. What's this? And, but not really touched or expounded on. At least I don't remember. Yeah, I, I did. Is that? I mean, I think that approach. Well, I don't know. I I can't read it any other way. That's yeah. I <laughs> I it's, don't know what you do with. Why do you persecute me like God does? And yeah. Just all these terrible things. And Job says, "I've just gotten through with the skin of my teeth." My family's dead. But with my flesh, I will see my Redeemer take his last stand on earth. And then to take his stand for the Redeemer, it sounds like 
Jesus. Once and for all, take care of business. I think it's a, a messianic passage of a particular kind. In the face of evil, the Messiah appears, and he is our, our defender, our redeemer. And Job knew all of that before Moses and the Pentateuch. This, they say Job is what, the time of Abraham? I, yeah, is that, I, I suppose. Uh, is that, I don't remember. Yeah. But it was written after some time. Yeah. Uh, is it too dark for, I mean, I, I, I sometimes wonder if maybe the uh, Christianity that would just explain evil away and say, no, it's not really a big problem. I, 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 uh, I, I know it's not, in other words, it may not be the kind of comfort we want. Because we're really, uh, it's not necessarily a, uh, it doesn't do what theory or ideology, in other words, there's no comfort of theory and ideology here. Mm -hmm. That's what ideology does for you. It gives you comfort. Oh, there's a reason to all this madness. Yeah. Cancer and death and violence. But unfortunately, ideology makes you complicit in the evil. Some way the evil you do, there's a deeper meaning behind it. Yeah. Rather yeah. Than, no, it's pretty senseless. We need to we need to send that grace may abound. Yeah. Nobody will ever actually say that, but they practice it. They practice it. Oh yeah. But nobody would say that. But I don't think anybody would have said it to Paul either. Yeah, Paul Probably not. Probably not. I nearly had someone say it here. To me, I mean, almost quoted that. When? From your institution there. Oh. Yeah. At your house? Yeah, yeah, he came and said, well, we had to do evil. Oh. Because we want the greater good. Oh, yeah. People will say that. Yeah. But they will never call it sin. Because it's not sin. The sin would be to choose the greater good. But if you choose the lesser good, That's con. That's con, yes. So. Well, you know what?